The Environmental Protection Agency is what I would equate to your child's painting from school. Through a forced grin and a little bit of reluctancy, you hang the picture on the fridge for all to see. That is basically my opinion on the EPA. Let's go over what this agency is, the controversy that persists, and the parallels of conservatism, but not necessarily libertarianism. Let's talk about it here on The Green Conversation, and I'm your host, Leo Jenko. So why do we have the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, in the first place? Well, the EPA is a large department comprised of 13 offices, but it all started in the 1970s. According to the EPA itself, there was a growing public concern about air quality, littering, and polluted water. And President Richard Nixon proposed a set of policies to to impose these standards of environmental quality. In addition to these policies, Nixon created a council to organize government programs. Later, the president proposed to Congress to centralize the responsibilities of environmental regulation under one agency, the EPA. The goal of the agency was to balance environmental and human health with economic development. This also involved enforcing and punishing offenders of the standards set in place by the agency. Despite the climate change debate between Republicans and Democrats, a Republican paved the way for government environmental protection. You would think then, with a Republican at its beginning, there would be some party pride, but that's not necessarily the case. The EPA has been bounced around the two political party system for so long. Now the EPA seems to be more of a tool for political agenda than for environmental protection. To understand this issue, we can point towards Dr. Sheila Jasanoff and her 1992 historical analysis of the EPA and scientific-based policy. According to Jasanoff, around 1970, science became more public and started to influence public policies. However, the science that was used by the EPA for regulation created its own paradox. From the front, politicians called for sound science to back public policies. However, from the back, the investigative journalism and political theater alienated the science from the public. This gatekeeping to the science behind policy could not be reached by the people and cast doubt on good science. The science can easily be misconstrued or misinterpreted for a political perspective. At first, the EPA was about pollution research and the means to control said pollution, but it quickly evolved into risk-driven policy. You, You see, before science was politically influenced, the EPA found a growing trend of pollution. The EPA was unable to say that we were environmentally safe at home, and thus risk-driven approaches were then used to suggest to establish environmental policy. But large hypotheticals were used to determine risk, which were untested and controversial. And this translated to policy which forced the EPA to account for its science. However, when you are confronted by science, skepticism is bound to happen, because that is how science works. You question a study, conduct it yourself, and add to our understanding. One study should not be the end-all be-all, but the EPA's goal is about policy productivity, not science. So, in response to skepticism, they said, trust us, we're scientists. And that approach does not go over well, as we can see post-COVID. The EPA started to rely on politicians to litigate the agency's legitimacy of the science behind a policy. But in this process, the scientists became politicians themselves, 
to gain support from legislators. Now there was a growing concern that you would be unable to challenge the science at all. And this is the first of many issues with the EPA. Everything the EPA does is behind government doors, and whoever can open those doors dictates the science to present to the public. We all call for a transparent government, but that would require the doors to be opened by anyone, and the government does not like that. This discombobbled mess of political agendas with the EPA does have a direct impact, too, on common business practices, and not for the good. I had a friend, let's call him Brad. Brad worked as an engineer at a water treatment plant, and Brad remembers each time the company had to file reports for the EPA. Now, you think the EPA would be smart enough to have a consistent reporting system, but that wasn't the case. Brad got really annoyed when he had to report EPA information because there were new regulations on top of old regulations and new measures that sometimes contradicted other standards. It was painful for my friend Brad to construct these reports. And if you recall earlier, I said there are 13 offices that comprises the EPA. That is a lot of offices proposing, implementing, and enforcing standards and regulations. And unfortunately, the EPA is forever changing with competing and evolving mandates and philosophy given the person in the presidency seat. On top of closed science, the EPA is directly exposed to president changes. The science is skewed to support government policy, whether government policy should be the answer or not. Due to the skewed nature, it is subjected to changing politics and philosophy within the government. Presidents change every four to eight years. Research, funding, and manpower can depend on the philosophy of the president or current environmental tragedy that the president has to address. And then there is the climate change debate. Some people think climate change is inevitable, some think it's controllable, others argue it just doesn't happen at all. So whoever controls the executive branch controls the actions and administrative health of the EPA. Luckily, we have records, and we can look at how presidencies change the administrative reach and health of the EPA. Let's just contrast Trump and Obama, two of the most polarizing presidents. The Trump administration lowered the EPA staff by 700. Now, that may not seem a lot because we're used to corporations. However, the ratio between people in the EPA and the business activity that's going on is very small. So 700 employees is a large cut. In addition, Trump assigned Scott Pruitt ahead of the EPA, who's a denier of climate change. And Trump also wanted to limit new regulations of the EPA. In contrast, Obama had a completely different approach. He pushed for more regulations. He wanted to focus on developing non-carbon fuel energy and spent over $3.9 million in grants and projects. Let's just listen to some of the latest presidents and their contrasting views on environmental issues, and you can determine for yourself whether or not that is going to affect EPA standards, regulations, and manpower. And we're going to ensure clean air and clean water for all of our people. Regulations, by the way, will be cut down to a fraction 
of what they are now. And believe it or not, environmentally, you'll be protected better and we'll have jobs, okay? We'll have jobs. So as we can see, Trump doesn't like the EPA at all. But if we take a clip of Obama talking to the EPA itself, he has a more holistic, uh, I guess, utilitarian view on environmental policies through the EPA. You know, just a few weeks ago, thanks to the hard work of so many of you, uh, Lisa and I were able to announce new common sense standards to better protect the air we breathe from mercury and other harmful air pollution. And that was a big deal. And part of the reason it was a big deal was because for over 20 years, special interest groups had successfully delayed implementing uh, these standards when it came to our nation's power plants. And what we said was enough. It's time to get this done. And because we acted, uh, we're going to prevent thousands of premature deaths. So Obama is very authoritative with the EPA. But what about the father and son presidency duo, George W. Bush and George H.W. Bush? Well, George H.W. Bush pushed for domestic environmental initiatives, and we saw this play out with his son when it came to the Kaido Protocol on greenhouse gases. And still over the last decade, we have not come far enough. Too many Americans continue to breathe dirty air and political paralysis has plagued further progress against air pollution. We have to break this logjam by applying more than just federal leverage. We must take advantage of the innovation, energy, and ingenuity of every American. The environmental movement has, long, has a long history here in this country. The approach taken under the Kyoto Protocol would have required the United States to make deep and immediate cuts in our economy to meet an arbitrary target. It would have cost our economy up to $400 billion, and we would have lost 4.9 million jobs. As President of the United States, charged with safeguarding the welfare of the American people and American workers, I will not commit our nation to an unsound international treaty that will throw millions of our citizens out of work. Yet we recognize our international responsibilities. So in addition to acting here at home, the United States will actively help developing nations grow along a more efficient, more environmentally responsible path. So as you can see, both father and son wanted to focus on environmental policy than anything else. And then there is Bill Clinton. Just like Obama, Clinton had a holistic view on environmental health. However, I think he was talking more in general, but you can decide for yourself. We are trying to do something no one has ever done before. We're trying to have a world with 7 billion, by mid-century, 9 billion people, and where we do more with the water we have, with the land we have, 
with the capacity to produce food, and we avoid the most calamitous consequences of climate change. So presidents vary wildly on environmental policy and approaches, but the controversy is not over the productivity of the EPA. The controversy is over the reach of the agencies and who is exposed to the agency's reach. And whoever is in the presidency gets to choose the targets of that agency. Overall, though, the EPA is poorly treated by both parties. The EPA's budget has not been increasing relative to its history. The largest budget was given during its conception in 1980, around $15 billion. The budget over the years have been steady, but on a slow downward trend with a sharp spike in 2010. But why 2010? You most likely know that year with the infamous BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And it would be political suicide if the Obama administration did not address that at all. And research has found that presidents from both parties have shown interest for other areas of government instead of the EPA. If you look at the budget of presidencies over the year, the EPA's budget has become proportionately smaller over the years. But research has found that the EPA is a bit resilient to the lack of attention from presidencies. Dr. Melissa Gerald and Dr. Joshua Ozimi saw that while the budget has been decreasing, the workforce and criminal prosecutions has been increasing over the years, even with a drop in manpower and prosecutions around 2012 to 2013. But this does not justify a loss of 700 employees during the Trump era. There can be multiple explanations why there's an increase in productivity. Most of the productivity could be just relative to the amount of manpower there is and the goals that they set in place. So what I'm trying to say is productivity does not mean sufficiency. They can be productive for what they are, but is it sufficient to really help the environment? I will say that I need to do more research on the matter. In criminology, the focus on federal law enforcement is low in research agendas. So there really isn't much to say about the EPA's law enforcement and their productivity in that sense. But again, it's not the law enforcement that's the controversy, but the regulations and standards and who's exposed to these policies that consistently change with presidencies. Overall, there is not sufficient interest in this agency to grow and to be refined. Presidents from both parties prefer to focus on other agencies for funding and resources. On top of that, I don't think there's enough funds with government to manage large amounts of business conducted in this nation. Do I think the EPA is unnecessary? No, not really. I think the idea of the EPA is necessary, but the current structure set in place is unnecessary. I recognize that there are certain realms of life that I believe need government assistance, and environmental protection is one of them. However, the political authoritative puppet called the EPA makes environmental protection a laughingstock. So how does the EPA play into conservative perspectives? Well, there are other strategies conservatives can use to tackle environmental issues without government intervention. But for now, I do want to focus on the role of government, since I believe this is one of the areas, few areas, where the government is needed. But how does government environmental oversight complement conservative ideals? Well, unfortunately, there are some conservative values that will be challenged, but others will be bolstered meaning someone's going to be offended and they can go cut grass. 
One thing that conservatives really value is business competition in the economy because it keeps prices low and it helps innovation. But I also like a fair playing field for everyone who wants to own capital and partake in business. Complete government withdrawal from the market on environmental issues is not a practical solution. If a business or organization goes too far in its production and manufacturing, other businesses and everyday citizens are restricted from those resources. In addition, competition can decrease due to a monopoly of resource ownership due to an imbalance of purchasing power. In addition, if there is little government insight on how resources are extracted and waste was handled, the environment will be damaged drastically, affecting future businesses. A perfect example of a situation where businesses ran without regulation was the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. After World War I, land that was typically used for livestock were transformed into multiple acres for wheat production. But the businesses overcultivated the land. Topsoil dried out and was carried off into the wind, causing massive clouds of sand and dirt. This caused a lot of farming to cease around the area. And I think the area spanned about three to four states. Um, don't quote me on that. But from this experience, farmers started to understand the importance of crop rotation, irrigation, and fertilization to maintain the health of the soil. Though this is an outdated example, it still has some merit into our history. Of course, we didn't have the knowledge back then in the 1930s, but it perfectly shows how the production with a lack of environmental knowledge can hurt future capitalistic ventures. The amount of farms that had to close really hurt the economy. I know some people will argue that companies and humans are very adaptive. They argue innovation will happen. However, predictive economics, natural and social sciences have multiple errors when it comes to predicting the future. And most of the time, it doesn't come out the way they said it would. So to plan for innovation and adaptation is not going to happen. It will always be retroactive when damage has already been done. For instance, the race for electric cars and lithium batteries can be damning if government limitations didn't exist in the first place. There will be large square craters spread across the globe in the ground just to lithium mine. There would be no consciousness until the limitations of the environment emerges, meaning we don't see the problem until it surfaces. Because again, our adaption and innovation is always reactive. It's never proactive because it's difficult to predict the future. But it's not like we haven't been forward thinking about the environment before. There were several companies environmentally conscious early on, but the blame was put more on the consumer, not the business. The most infamous example was the crying Indian commercial. Companies pushed for a hard campaign against littering, but the major problem was the lack of understanding of plastic within production, not the consumer. Now, what about the more conservative libertarian arguments that the EPA is too much government oversight? Well, a recent study has found that the EPA's regulations had little effect on business growth. A 2021 study by Ching and colleagues found an interesting relationship between business productivity and EPA regulations. The study observed business growth after COVID-19 lockdowns. During this time, to ensure business growth, the EPA rolled back on regulations and oversight. But when the economy slowly opened, there was little difference in growth compared to pre-COVID. So what does this mean? Well, the influence on business growth are not solely dictated by the EPA. The EPA can be annoying for smaller businesses and their productivity. 
for many, it can act as a gateway into the economy, but growth around natural resources are still predicted. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, agriculture, forestry, hunting and fishing, and support activities for mining are two of the top three industries predicted to grow the most between now and 2029. The, the main difference I see between a liberal and a conservative when it comes to the EPA is how the EPA is going to be used. With each presidency, there will be new rules and regulations put in place or taken away that would override or complicate the current standards and reporting process. And right now, we know Democrats are more likely to add more rules that would complicate the operations of the EPA, ruining the effectiveness it would be better for them to review the current book, strip unnecessary standards and regulations, or update older ones. But more importantly, communication. This is the worst part of the government. No effective and timely notification of changes. But what can conservatives do with the EPA? In my opinion, I think it would be more advantageous for conservatives to change the EPA into a think tank rather than a regulatory agency. One of the main problems with the EPA is environmental policy production, not furthering science itself. This direction of productivity will skew the perceptions of employees and initiatives set in place by the agency, which ultimately will affect the science that will be conducted. The EPA should be solely focused on conducting tests of the environment and determining the cause of environmental degradation. The agency should not lobby or push for policy, they should be a pool for politicians to come and find resources. If a politician doesn't find resources they don't like, well, they can, again, they can go cut grass themselves. There is a lot more to discuss with the EPA. So don't believe that this is the end-all be-all with the EPA discussion on this podcast. I just want to show you how messed up the EPA has been since its conception. The idea is there and good. But I don't think we've cracked the code for effective science or environmental public policy. Well, that's it for this episode. Remember to subscribe and like this channel for future notifications of episodes. In the meantime, think about the EPA and how much regulation you think should be used at the federal level, or if the EPA should just solely focus on science. All right, I will talk to you all another time. You just listened to The Green Conversation with Leo. If you would like to contribute to the podcast, please visit leojenko.org and sign up to be a member of the community. As a member, you can get content all year long compared to public listeners. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Search for The Green Conversation. Music was produced by Michael David Mobley. Sound and scripts were produced in-house. Research to make this episode is cited in the episode description. If you would like to make a one-time donation, please contact me for further details. Contact information is on the website. Look for the next episode in two weeks. See you then.